My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. Somehow another summer has come and gone already and we are saying goodbye to our Foxfire summer leadership students. These students are local Raven County kids who come and spend six weeks over the summer with us for a paid immersive experience that exposes them to the history and culture of Appalachia while encouraging them to develop skills for post-secondary educational success. And they also get to apprentice with local craftspeople. So the students are required, (laughs) I say that in air quotes because it's their favorite part, to participate in a craft such as blacksmithing or weaving or wood stove cooking and to learn over that six-week period from somebody who actively practices that craft to keep those traditions alive. And the kids just absolutely love it. We had over eight students do blacksmithing this year. It was the most popular activity by far. But they had a really great time. And as part of that program, they do a small group project called a SEED project that stands for Students Experiencing Education Differently. It's an acronym that they actually came up with to describe what they do here. And they explore one aspect of history or culture in Appalachia, and then they have to do an investigative component, a service component, and a practicum component to that project. So they design their projects all by themselves in their small groups. Then they have to interview somebody who is either an expert in that field or has some knowledge related to whatever they're studying. And then they have to create something for the museum and the Foxfire magazine, whether that's a blog post and a recommendation for an exhibit or an actual artifact. So one of our students was really interested in the history of the Bartram Trail. For those of you who don't know, William Bartram was a botanist and explorer who went through this region in the late 1700s after the Revolutionary War. And his account chronicles this journey through the lens of botany and culture. So he describes the landscape, he describes in detail the plants that he was encountering, Um, but he also talks a lot about the people that he met along the way, specifically indigenous peoples, and especially for a white male in the 18th century, He has a very different perspective on indigenous peoples and later became an advocate for indigenous rights. And that's something you'll hear our interviewee talk about today. So this student, Sarah Beth, wanted to create a documentary about the making of the actual trail. So the Bartram Trail traces William Bartram's physical journey through this region. It starts in South Carolina and goes into North Carolina. And a lot of people do a through hike on it. It's much shorter than the Appalachian Trail and it's much less traveled than the Appalachian Trail. So a lot of local people really enjoy getting out on the Bartram for that experience, but also for the flora and fauna that you'll encounter on the way. So Sarah Beth did some interviews related to the Bartram Trail and created a small documentary that's now available on our YouTube channel. Um, But we also captured some audio from those interviews. She interviewed her grandfather, Alan Speed, who participated in the making of the Bartram Trail. 
And then together as a group, we all interviewed Brent Martin, who is the executive director of the Blue Ridge Bartram Trail Conservancy, which is based in North Carolina, but is responsible for maintaining both the Georgia and North Carolina sections of the Bartram Trail. Brent Martin is a local authority on William Bartram, so of course we wanted to get his take on the history of Bartram and Bartram's Trail in the area. So we met Brent and his associate Chris at the Cowie School, where their office is based in North Carolina. And if you guys could just say your names for the recording. Chris Trankina. Brent Martin. Okay, great. And we'll get started. I'm going to put it over here. The Cowie School is an old stone school that used to be a local elementary school, but since it closed, has been turned into a community cultural center. Their office is located inside this building. It's an old classroom with long tables, tall bookshelves, and any book you could ever want on the natural and cultural history of Western North Carolina. So we sit down with Brent and Chris and get to talking. Okay. And why don't you sit next to Brent? So you're close to the microphone. Okay. Well, Sarah Beth kicked us off with some of her questions. I'm mostly interested in learning about the Bartram Trail because my grandfather helped build a big portion of it in Raymond County and it's just something that I feel like I could learn more about for my family and it would benefit me to learn more. Yeah, and we also don't have a lot in Foxfire archives about the Bartram Trail and it's such a big part of this part of the region. I so. really want to know more about the Georgia history particularly because we really don't have that much on the Bartram in Georgia you know because we just took it over two years ago. Yeah. You know, all we were maintaining was the North Carolina section and then when I came on a couple uh, several years ago as a contract employee I just started helping John get volunteers to work in the Georgia section so I just went to the board and said we need to take the whole trail. Like, we need to own the whole thing. It's crazy to have, you know, two organizations and two sets of volunteers. And, like, it's just one trail. Bartram didn't walk from Georgia into North Carolina, you know. He walked <laughs> the Charlestown trade path into the Little Tennessee River Valley. You know? So, like, why not just think about it as one thing? Well, I brought something that... Um, this is a checklist of plants that uh, from Bartram's travels that... Um, a botanist by the name of Dan Patillo put that checklist together and those are all the plants that he described and what he just called this all Cherokee country. It wasn't like, you know, the Blue Ridge province or anything. So when Bartram is coming up into North Georgia and Raven County and coming through the Chattooga River drainage and up into the here to Cowie where he ended his travels here up in Old Tennessee. He was right here, literally, probably like, you know, like, hundred yards over the mountain right there. Um, this was all just what he called Cherokee country. And so all those plants that are on that list there are plants that he described while in Cherokee country. What was the significance of William Bartram's interactions with the Cherokee people? Probably maybe some of the most important um, results of Bartram being here is that when he went back to Philadelphia. He was a Quaker and he grew up in Philadelphia and that was home for him, was Philadelphia. And after four years on the road, he went back to Philadelphia and never left Philadelphia, more than a day's ride by horse. So there was there were a lot of people who were super curious about what Bartram saw with Native American people because he was an astute observer. So he wrote a lot about customs, traditions, um, 
morality, um, virtues and values and vice. So people began writing Bartram and wanting to know more about the native people in the southeast, Cherokees being one of them, but also the Seminoles and the Muscogees and the Creeks, the Choctaws, and all these tribes that he spent time with. So in a lot of ways, that you know, even though he was just well-known and well-respected as a botanist and an artist, really, I think his one of his biggest contributions is just southeastern Indian, you know, knowledge and lore. And at the same time, arguing for the rights for those people. So it was more than just, you know, here's how they cook and here's how their buildings look and here's how the mound you know, sites developed. It was more about, well, their morality is just as good as ours, you know, and their faith is just as strong as our faith. And um, they deserve equality before the law. Um, and, you know, there was really no one else doing that. How has the discoveries of William Bartram affected the making of the Bartram Trail? The Bartram Trail was built because of his travels through here, of course, but... Um, the 200-year anniversary of that journey throughout the whole Southeast was in 1977. And so all these states came together, the seven states that Bartram traveled through, which were just colonies at the time, um, territories at the time. But the states all got together and decided to create a national scenic trail to honor everywhere Bartram went, you know, on his travels. So. Um, the trail had to be built. Everyone at that conference from all those states agreed that where people were putting Bartram trails needed to at least be within a 30-mile corridor of where Bartram traveled. So he traveled in Georgia and North Carolina. He traveled about 110 or so plus miles. And that was kind of what the organization that was created, which was the North Carolina Bartram Trail Society, came up with. They put together 70 miles and North Carolina, and then the Georgia group came up with almost 40. So that's how it all started, and that was back in 1977. Then there was 23 miles at one point. After wrapping up our first interview, we knew it was not going to be enough, and we definitely wanted to get out and experience the trail and get some footage for Sarah Best documentary. So we set a date for a hike with Brent and Chris, and we met them a little less than a month later, out on the Bartram Trail near Warham Dell, just outside of Clayton, Georgia. Where does the trail for the Bartram start in Georgia? Well, down the South Carolina state line. So if you go all the way out War Woman, as far as War Woman goes, uh, you'll take a ride on 28. After several miles, you'll get down to where the uh, Chattooga River is coming under the highway there. That's the beginning. It used to start in South Carolina uh, about 20 something miles we're in South Carolina and that trail I, don't, I still don't know what happened to it it was basically abandoned the Georgia Trail before we took it on was <laughs> it felt like it was on its way there's no one maintaining it yeah. this is Becky Branch Falls no, no one Someone knows who Becky was. I don't know who Becky was, but maybe you all could figure out who Becky was. And that'll help us with our interpretation we're going to use here at some point. 
down at War Woman Dale, we want to put an interpretive kiosk soon. On our hike, Brent told us about a lot of the plants and animals that Bartram would have encountered on his journey. Brent is so knowledgeable about the area that it was like every few feet we stopped and he could describe something in great detail to us using many of the words that Bartram himself penned nearly 300 years ago. The kids definitely enjoyed this part of the experience and being able to get hands-on with the history of Bartram and to walk literally in his footsteps. Yeah, take a wild guess. It's a fruit, a bear's fruit, really big fruit, like the size of a mango almost, but it's a little smaller than a mango. Does this it plant. Tastes like a banana. Yeah, sorta. So pawpaws. You ever heard pawpaws? No. Yeah. Can you eat them? Yeah, gosh, yeah. They're our one of our true Southern Appalachian delicacies. It's really hard to get them when they're ripe because so many animals get to them first. But I've been growing them. My wife and I raise them in our house, and some years we'll get a couple of dozen of them maybe but it's an incredible wildlife food and it's an incredible human food and it's just you got to really figure out how to protect it from wildlife so you can get to it and it's these aren't producing fruit they're they flower in the spring and they're fly pollinated so um, if there's a weird spring like climate change now has been affecting certain plants like this they have very specific pollinators. If those pollinators miss a hatch or whatever because of late frost or early frost or whatever, they'll lose that pollination and they won't produce fruit. So they may flower, but you don't get any fruit from the flowers. It's those big green leaves and they grow in colonies like this, real dense together. So there's not a whole lot you can confuse them with once you learn them. Pass these around to you all. Can I eat it? Hmm? Yeah. Nah. No. No? I mean, you know, you can find out. <laughs> so, you know, he described plants in this area that were new to science back then, and this is one of the most significant ones for this area. And this is called Fraser Magnolia, and Bartram called it Mountain Magnolia. And there's a long story, I won't bore you with, of botanical intrigue on how this turned into be Fraser Magnolia. But do you see the little, kind of look, they look like little earlobes on the bottom of the leaf? So that's how you know it's a Fraser Magnolia. So Bartram called it Magnolia auriculata, you know, like oracle, little auricular shape at the base of the tree. Blooms these big white flowers in the spring. You've probably seen them bloom. They bloom around April. They bloom pretty early in early May. And so Bartram, I believe, went this way up to Courthouse Gap. And we're not going to go that far today. But when he got to Courthouse Gap, he called that Mount Magnolia. Because he had seen so many these Fraser Magnolias on his way up the Blue Ridge Mountains. And, you know, when he got to the Pinnacle, as it's called today, he called it Mount Magnolia. The weird thing about it is that there's not a single magnolia on top of that mountain. So General Lamar Marshall particularly questions whether or not Bartram actually went to the pinnacle. 
probably was more likely on top of the Highlands Plateau, up closer to Satula Mountain, if you know where that is. But you'll see this magnolia all over these woods down in this area. And that's an important one to remember for Bartram and his plant knowledge. Of course, the Cherokees, before Bartram, had names and uses for all these plants. But Bartram was describing them for old world botanists and collectors that never heard of these plants or seen these plants. Hill cane? Yeah, that's our hill cane. We have a couple species of river cane here, and this is the one that grows up on the mountainsides. It's called hill cane. Um, doesn't get really big like our river cane gets. It'll get about three, four feet high, and that's about it. But it dries and you know grows on these drier slopes. Let's try something real quick. Yeah. You all should try a piece of this when you go by. It's called horse sugar. Keep chewing, <laughs> or you can just spit it out, whatever. Probably save you on the trail though if you're really having a low blood sugar experience. Bug. You can eat this and live off of this. This is good stuff. Is this native or invasive? This native. That's what I call a native invasive. <laughs> it'll grow and take over place. It's, sour. it's a little sour. It's better to get it when it's really, really fresh and tender. You can't eat any more of the plant, just the tips of it. It's really hard to find because the deer eat it first. Yeah, you can eat the young piece, the young parts of it. It just gets tougher as you go down. Plus, it puts out these big thorns. But when it's just starting to grow and the fresh shoots are coming off the end, it's really actually a much better flavor than what you just experienced. But you could, you know, another plant that you could get by on for a while if you had to. Yeah. That and horse sugar and a whole bunch of mushrooms and crayfish. Are they like poisonous? Oh yeah, totally. There's only about five or six that I would look at and go, I'll eat that, I'll eat that one. Because a lot of them, yeah, you just have to really, really be careful with mushrooms. This is a really, really rare species right here. This is our native mountain camellia, Stewardia ovata. And no one had ever described this species before William Bartram encountered it here. About two weeks ago, we could have come through here. The ground here would be covered in these big white flowers. And I mean like the most beautiful flowers that you will find in Appalachia. And you can see, if you look up onto the branches, and just follow the branch structure, go out on the twigs, see those buds, those big green buds, sort of acorn shaped almost. See those? Okay, those were all flowers. So now those are going to be seeds. Um, this plant, this shrub is probably heading towards extinction because it's becoming that, it's considered imperiled in the state of North Carolina. Very few places in Georgia you can see this plant. This is one of them. Um, just an uncommon, unusual species. And this is a pretty big one. They actually don't get really big. They're extremely hard to grow. People do try to grow them. I've got some growing, but it takes a long time to get them established. You see this plant here is multiflora rose, and that's just gonna come in here thicker and thicker and it'll just crowd everything out and dominate it. So it's probably a good place to turn around, but um, do y'all know what this tree is? Hmm? Chris, you don't get the answer. I was just thinking good. we had seen any on the way. Yeah. Like chestnut? It's American chestnut. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, you got one at Foxfire? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
pretty stinky leaf. Not a whole lot to confuse it with. Looks like a like chestnut oak a little bit, but chestnut oak's more rounded. So it's another tree Bartram described coming into the mountains, but it was kind of everywhere at that point. Mm. Brent, how would you describe Bartram's narrative style? Since it's such a great blend of like cultural and botanical observations. I would call William Bartram this country's first creative nonfiction writer because he merged, he, he merged the science of his day with the, what was happening with the emergence of romantic literature. So I would describe his language and his narrative as being a very much romantically driven narrative interspersed with the science of the day. So all the nomenclature of science, all the Linnaean terms for botany were all used while at the same time he was using language like the word sublime. The historian <laughs> Roderick Nash says William Bartram was the first colonial American to ever use the word sublime to describe the American landscape. Frank, could you describe how you think the landscape has changed since Bartram's been here? Yeah, um, so when Bartram was here, 1775, um, it's changed in so many different ways. For one thing, I would say, you start with water, hydrology has been altered tremendously um, for a lot of different reasons. If you go to natural um, elements on the landscape that have been eliminated largely things like beavers were here in you know far 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 greater numbers than they are now <laughs> so Bartram passes through a lot of these mountain stream areas uh, horseback and describing these big open meadows grassy meadows and even up high he would describe these big grassy openings and those were most likely because he was either seeing beaver activity or past beaver activity so when beavers will you know beavers will you know dam streams in these mountains up three four thousand feet high and make you know big big ponds out of them and then when they abandon those ponds those are dead trees that turn into big grassy openings so he was probably seeing a lot of that passing through some of these openings that he described as big grassy meadows also, what he was witnessing in a lot of the areas, like down the Little Tennessee River Valley in the Chattooga, Upper Chattooga here, were abandoned Cherokee villages that had been big agricultural operations at one point prior to the French and Indian Wars. So, for example, when he was traveling down the Little Tennessee River Valley, he was describing plains of strawberries growing that would stain his horse's hooves. Well, those were big Cherokee strawberry plantations that had been planted for who knows how many centuries at that point before the French and Indian Wars and those villages were wiped out. So he also up high in the mountains described of course huge trees, sublimely open grassy forest land and uh, stately trees as he sometimes called them. So you know he was just seeing acres and acres and acres, thousands of acres of old growth forest and the Cherokees were burning the mountains. They burned the mountains for all kinds of reasons to hunt to create more browse for game species. So Bartram was describing these big high elevation forests sometimes that were just full of huge trees that, that um, of course, are now gone. So the landscape that he saw then was one that would be primarily old growth, except for what the Cherokees had cut for their own use. So that's, I think, probably, that's probably the most dramatic feature on this landscape that has changed are the forests themselves. So we don't, 
you know, know exactly what the composition was. I mean, he describes seeing a lot of big eastern hemlocks and birches and, you know, common Appalachian species, oaks and pines. Uh, but, you know, you look around where we are right now, um, this is a pretty young forest. This forest was probably logged, you know, 50 years ago or less. So this forest here probably has been logged more than once. So we've lost a baseline really for what a lot of these Appalachian forests would have been like um, at Bartram's time. So I think those are probably two of the major factors, but also I'd say the hydrology back to water all the logging and land clearing and the channelization of streams here also affected the way water flows. It affected the, um, the bank structure on these rivers um, just from just huge increases in volume and, volume and sediment load. So, huh. and of course, so many of the species that Bartram described are now in trouble. Um, because of climate change and because of invasive exotic species. Hemlocks, for example, him describing all those massive hemlocks. Of course, most of those are now dead because of hemlock woolly adelgid. And so many other, you know, forest pests that have come in since then, introduced forest pests. So, you know, and then the other, another change would be him describing abundance of uh, Panax synchrofolia or gins American ginseng uh, and also golden seal two plants that Bartram described occasionally in these mountains that he saw growing in, in great abundance that were completely over harvested in the 19th century by colonial settlers and traders um, it's a man named Nimrod Jared over on the western side of the Nanahalas who owned thousands of acres on that side of the mountains in western North Carolina and he exported tons of ginseng if you can imagine a ton of ginseng and um, I mean, those are the kinds of other you know anthropogenic factors that change the forest so much that they've never really recovered from and I think we may walk past those mountain camellias and we'll try to get them on the way back sorry distracting you no no they're in here somewhere Yeah, that sound about? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Great. What are some ways you think that we could engage with Bartram when we walk on this trail or any other trail here in Southern Appalachia? I think you can engage with him more than... Um, the natural history level, I think people automatically want to go to people who, you know, people who still are interested in Bartram and his plant world descriptions, and there are a lot of people who still do that, um, spend time, you know, Bartram's plant descriptions trying to unravel species occurrences and different things like that, which that's, you know, one way to appreciate Bartram in this landscape, but I think, um, Probably more importantly is who he was as an individual and putting him in an 18th century uh, context and then trying to juxtapose that into the 21st century because for an 18th century colonial American he really 
was different. <laughs> he was an oddity for his day. Um, his approach to nature, his approach to the landscape was um, very unusual, not at all common. Um, mentioned earlier how Roderick Nash said he was the first um, American to describe the American landscape you know, in these rap rhapsodic terms like sublime and magnificent and awfully, you know, awful in the sense of the 18th century being an awe-inspiring place. So almost all colonial settlers were about taking land, grabbing land, um, you know, settling land, driving native people off their land. And Bartram certainly traveled the landscape and saw its value um, and saw its capacity to produce agriculture or be used for cattle. He was not um, unique in that way because a lot of it was he was being paid to travel the southern landscape and do that type of description. At the same time, Bartram was writing very, very differently about native people and how we should be treating native people and really um, incorporating and assimilating is not the right kind of word, but he did struggle with how to do that. He went so far as to say that, um, you know, they have more right to this land than we do, and that, that should be first and foremost how we approach native people. So if there's one word I would use to describe William Bartram and his value system, it would be humility. Uh, that was how he approached, I think, nature, creation, and indigenous people. There are some bizarre anomalies in Bartram's past because he fell in love with the St. John's River Valley. He was a Quaker. Quakers were uh, proclaimed abolitionists. They were for Native American rights. Um, Bartram's father was a bit of a heretic and he actually uh, bought William Bartram, his son, slaves, six uh, slaves in the St. John's River Valley. And that was a very brief experiment. Bartram did not like it, but he was pretty much willing to do what his father said in order to try and set up a uh, residence in the St. John's River Valley. He basically blew his inheritance in order to try making a go up in the St. John's River Valley. And Henry Lawrence, a South Carolina planter, uh, went to check on Bartram and said that, you know, basically every slaves were just, you know, basically free at that point and were really not working and that Bartram was just in this very depressed kind of despondent state and he tells John Bartram his William's father that he really isn't made for this world and that he really should be allowed to go be an artist and a painter and a botanist and that's what he did he he hit it hit it rich not rich he hit he hit a vein of gold with uh, in a metaphorical sense with a man named Peter Collinson who helped William get a um, patronage from um, a British doctor named John Fothergill that paid him a stipend to travel around and paint and collect plants and describe plants. Um, and he became an abolitionist when he returned to Philadelphia. He wrote abolitionist papers. He used um, he, his plant catalogs that the family business produced. And he was just a worker at the family business. He was not an owner in the family business. It went to his older brother. Uh, but he would write these big broadsides on the backs of the family plant catalogs about how uh, abolition was the future and that, that we were making huge grave mistakes by enslaving um, uh, African-Americans. Um, I would say William Bartram was one of the first animal rights activists. <laughs> he actually wrote passionately about animal intelligence um, 
that's a huge long story but um so i think that that's what's probably to me gives him some relevance maybe in the 21st landscape 21st century sense of the word you know landscape uh he that sense of humility that he imbued as he walked and explored um that's still a value that we don't have very dear to us so i feel like we can learn a lot from that still a whole lot well thank you so much for joining us today i hope you enjoyed this hike through history with william barstrom here in the north georgia and western north carolina mountains if you're interested in learning more about Brent and the Blue Ridge Bartram Trail Conservancy, head on over to our website at www.foxfire.org. You can use the menu at the top to navigate to the podcast page, or you can scroll down to the bottom. You'll see a series of um, excerpts from blog posts, and it'll be the one on the left. You can just click that and it'll take you straight to the blog post for today's episode. We'll have pictures there as well as links to the Conservancy's website and um, ways that you can read William Bartram's travels. If you want to just navigate straight to Brent and Chris's organization, you can go to blueridgebartram.org to learn more about the Conservancy's work in this region and how you can get involved. We'll be back next month with another great podcast for you as we all of a sudden launch right into fall. Um, we appreciate your support and listening to this podcast. If you want to support our work with local high school students in this area, as well as promoting hands-on education and preservation of history, please consider supporting our organization. We are a nonprofit and all of your purchases through our web store, in our museum shop, admission to our museum, or donations go straight back to our mission of preserving and promoting um, Southern Appalachian history and culture. Consider becoming a member. If you're not local, you can always opt for a digital membership, which gets you access to our backlog of Foxfire magazines, as well as other great perks throughout the year. If you are local, consider an in-person membership, which will get you annual admission to the museum so that you can explore all of our amazing buildings and exhibits, our new children's village, as well as attend special events throughout the year. As always, again, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, share, leave us a review, let us know how we're doing, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>